Hey, Andrew here. If you uh, haven't listened to Monad 1, What is a Monad?, then you might be a little bit confused about the naming of the episodes on the podcast. So what I've done is I have some shorter and less highly produced episodes that I'm calling monads, and that's what you're about to hear. But the episodes that I was the most obsessive about and put the most effort and time into, I'm calling those episodes full episodes as part of a full season So go to the seasonal episodes if you want to hear Reductio at its best. But if you want to hear me kind of playing around with the medium and and playing around with ideas uh, that I find interesting in in a little bit shorter and more informal format, uh, then listen to the monads. I hope you enjoy. Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Congresswoman Ilan Omar has been accused of making anti-Semitic marks, primarily on Twitter. Well, maybe it's not quite that simple. People have accused her of using language that's similar to anti-Semitic language, but it's not even clearly that simple. She's used language that is somewhat similar to phrases that anti-Semites might recognize as anti-Semitic, but which the average observer wouldn't necessarily recognize as anti-Semitic. But maybe it's not even that simple. This is a puzzling conceptual situation, and so the clear distinctions that we make in philosophy will be really helpful here. To help us sort all this out, I talked with J.J. Lang, a Ph.D. candidate at Stanford University. I decided to do pretty close to a straight interview here, but I'll hop in to explain things every now and then since it gets a little dense at times. It's rearranged and edited a bit, but not quite as intensely edited as I might normally do for Reductio. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I, I know I did. Cool. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, so my name is JJ. Uh, I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Stanford University in philosophy. My research is in philosophy of language, particularly language as it applies to communication, not language on like the formal logic side. So my dissertation is on the speech act of assertion and the role of assertion in communication and the role of assertion in like coordinating and acting together. Um, so a lot of what I, a lot of what I found interesting about philosophy was out of this idea of communication and speaker meaning in particular. So when JJ says his work is about the speech act of assertion, basically what he means is there are a number of different things we can do with language. The first thing you might think we can do is assert something to be the case. We can assert that the world is round. We can assert that the GDP of the United States is blah, 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 blah. So we do this action using language, and that action is asserting something. So we might be interested in language because we're interested in the fact that language represents the world to be a certain way, and it describes the world in a certain way, and it can be true and false. We might also be interested 
in language because it's, it's a sort of social practice that we engage in with one another. But we also might be interested in language because it's an action. It's a kind of action that we do. So when JJ says his dissertation is on the speech act of assertion, he's interested in what it means to assert something using language. Um, so while my research is not on dog whistling or insinuation or that kind of like political speech right now, that's always been something near to my heart. And I think starting to see philosophers of language consider that when I was looking at applying to grad school as part of the thing that made me excited to be a philosopher of language. So I, uh, was born and raised in a not particularly religious Jewish household. My parents moved to North Carolina when I was one and joined a synagogue. My mom, I don't think, was ever particularly religious. My dad hadn't been for a while, but finding a sort of community. So they went to the synagogue and we were in North Carolina. So I think they were a little concerned about who they would meet that they uh, would feel familiar with in some way. And the synagogue in a college town was full with a bunch of um, misplaced Northern Jews. Um, (laughs) And so a lot of friends and more so parents, friends growing up were at least ethnically Jewish, if not Mm. religiously Jewish. And between that, Mel Brooks movies, (laughs) everything else, it just felt like, I felt like a New York Jew, even if I like had spent like a grand total of like a month of my life in New York by the time I went to college. (laughs) Um, But um, religiously, it just never stuck. My mother will tell you stories about how I thought I invented atheism (laughs) when I was eight. But... This Jewish identity has something that religious religion aside, I mean, these are smart people. These are creative people. These are funny people. Um, Lots of them in academia. So it definitely is something where it like I saw myself as one of them and it made sense to me. Something that never made sense to me was the state of Israel. I don't think my parents were ever fervent. Israeli supporters, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised if that was one reason why they weren't more involved in Jewish life, even though I don't think our synagogue was either. But it was just always this like weird thing to me that there was this state for Jews, except other people already lived there. (laughs) And the reason why there was this need for the state for Jews was more or less because of a lack of belief that Jews could assimilate into states for everyone else. Um, and, and this the, it's just this idea that this land was for us because of any sort of like old vague religious reason just like rang hollow for me because it seems like any any religion worth its salt is going to tell you to not evict people from their land. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> so, and so even if I can't put the Torah on that. Um, it just seems like yeah, either there's something wrong with this religion or there's something wrong with the way people are interpreting this. Mm. And so that was always like my stance on Israel. And that was for a while, something that was just like, felt like an opinion I had. And then it wasn't until my politics started to grow and then a growing strand of more leftist politics came on that First, I think maybe in the UK a little bit, asterisks about actual anti-Semitism there, but first in the UK. Mm-hmm. And here there is a strand of leftist politician that was willing to break a more or less bipartisan support of Israel. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, it seemed like this was something that you could have opinions on in a major way that could actually shape policy and that actually vocally being critical of Israel and 
switching the focus also to vocally in support of the Palestinians who live there, whose whose land is constantly being taken away, whose rights are constantly being infringed on. Being vocally in support of that is something that like you could do, and it's something that just no longer felt like a fringe gesture and it felt like something worth fighting for being vocally about and so that was something that i began sharing more on social media about joining groups like jewish voice for peace and starting to reassess my jewish identity through this identity as a non-zionist jew and that being something that made sense for me i can plug uh i can plug a podcast episode i find very useful about this if you'd be interested sure uh so my partner runs a podcast called 50 feminist states and she's been interviewing feminist activists in every state. And one of the New York episodes, she interviews an academic who identifies as a non-Zionist Jew. And a lot of her political work has been on uh, Palestinian rights. And through about a half hour, she goes through much more detail and clarity than I ever could exactly what's going on there, what's been going on there and what to do about it. But I think it was through listening to that that I even like had this vocabulary for myself of a non-Zionist Jew. Mm-hmm. And it's through it's it's through my connection to this culture that I have this criticism of the state and um, then really seeing in the 2018 midterm elections for the first time you have Rashida Tlaib you have Ilhan Omar you have these, these women who are there who are vocally saying I'm going to support the boycott divest sanction movement even as Marco Rubio is trying to make support of that movement illegal not mm. He doesn't support it. He's trying to make support of that illegal. He's trying mm-hmm. to make it that if you support that movement, states can boycott you legally. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, or states have to boycott you, I should say. The BDS movement or the Boycott Divest Sanction movement is a movement that, as I understand it, actually started with South Africa, where the idea was to boycott products from and companies based in South Africa divest from the government, from bonds with the government, from companies that do business in South Africa, etc., in an effort to end apartheid. And the same sort of idea has been extended to Israel because of Israel's posture towards Palestinians in Israel and in the Palestinian territories of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. The BDS movement often thinks of the Israeli posture towards Palestinians as one of apartheid and their behavior towards the Palestinians as akin to South African apartheid. And so in an attempt to incentivize Israel to stop the Palestinian apartheid, they want universities and other organizations to divest from and boycott Israeli academics, Israeli companies, Israeli products. Hmm. Um, So to see this bravery coming out there, saying this, being vocally critical around the time that Israel's leader, far right leader, Benjamin Netanyahu has been in the news, just not even trying to pretend that Israel is a state for everyone not even trying right. to pretend like they care that the Israeli military is murdering innocents. It's, it feels like there's this time where, yeah, if you talk about this, people will listen. And if you don't talk about this, people are going to start asking why. JJ wrote a blog post about the philosophy of language surrounding Ilan Omar's alleged anti-Semitic remarks. I've linked his post in the show notes. It's really worth reading. I should note that this is a bit more political of an episode than I'll aim for as a general rule with Reductio, but if you bear with us, you'll see that neither JJ nor I are in the grips of a political ideology that's clouding our thinking. 
We're both trying to get to the bottom of a conceptual and moral issue that simply has some implications in the political realm. So it often goes in philosophy, where we find that thinking carefully and making distinctions and connections between different sorts of views ends up having political consequences, even though we weren't set on those political conclusions from the get-go, at least not in an irrational or problematic way. I'm going to put off actually telling you exactly what she said. This way we'll get a clear understanding of what a dog whistle is and exactly what sorts of dog whistles there are. And then when we look at what she actually said, then we won't have prejudged the issue. Yeah, so I saw that you posted that piece and I wanted to talk through it because I've been thinking a lot about the Ilan Omer controversy and I'm not sure what to think of it. Um, on the one hand, it feels unfair and it feels like a Somali Muslim freshman congresswoman in hijab is an uncomfortable target. And furthermore, I've always been deeply bothered by the equation of criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. On the other hand, I hear genuine criticism of Omar from people that seems to be in good faith. And I wonder if there's something I'm missing here. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It, I think it is a really hard thing. And um, I think the thing I want to be... One thing I do want to be clear on is I do not think that the majority or I don't know about majority. I do not think that a significant chunk of that coming from Jewish voices, Jewish leaders, Jew religious people. I do not think that is bad faith criticism at all. Um, and uh, th there are other people who I suspect it is bad faith right. criticism when Donald <laughs> Trump said that she should step down for her anti-Semitic comments. I think that was bad faith opportunism. <laughs> I think that people who are very aware of the long history of anti-Semitic tropes, anti-Semitic rhetoric, the way that built over hundreds of years in Europe leading to the Nazis, the way that has still played a role in the alt-right, which I think isn't wasn't on a lot of people's radar before the Pittsburgh mm -hmm. massacre, that... There's a reason these guys are called, they're neo-Nazis, right? They're not neo-Klansmen, even though like a lot of their animosity is more racially motivated than ethnically motivated. You see the Richard Spencer boys like chowning Jew will not replace us at a rally. There's, there's anti-Semitism. Um, right. I think so. So I th and I think there's reason to be afraid of anti-Semitism and there's reason to be on a lookout for it. And there's reason to feel like people haven't been on a lookout for it. Right. So all of that makes complete sense to me. Um, but speaking of Richard Spencer, the Pittsburgh shooter, I think the anti-Semitism I'm worried about is not coming from Muslim women <laughs> um, or Muslims. It is coming like most of the things I'm worried about. It is coming from white men. Interesting. Um, and that doesn't mean that Muslim women cannot be anti-Semitic. That doesn't mean that there can't be anti-Semitism in Muslim communities. But I think there is this trope of like this animosity between Jews and Arabs, between Jews and Muslims, that is looked at as like these two groups hate each other. Mm -hmm. So clearly that's what's going on when the anti-Semitism that seems to be causing problems today, the anti-Semitism that led to the Nazis was from a very, very different source. Right. Um, so to use, so as sympathetic as I am, and I am Jewish, as aware as I am of like anti-Semitism, there's, it's important to me also that we look at the culprits um, and we consider power. We consider whose anti-Semitism is going to be harming us, who has been leading to these rises of anti-Semitism. Because what I'm afraid about is if everything that 
is inconvenient is anti-Semitism, <laughs> then that charge loses its meaning. And if that charge loses its meaning, then it's really hard to talk about the anti-Semites who actually are going around shooting up synagogues. Right. So I'm very protective of that charge precisely because I care about it right. and not because I want to dismiss it. I guess what was happening more recently is that with Ilhan Omar in particular, I just kept seeing, and in this article I read, I linked to a lot of places I saw it, but not even a fraction of them. I just kept seeing people try and describe what was wrong about the way she was criticizing the state of Israel as referring to this concept of dog whistling. The language she's using contains dog whistles that are anti-Semitic. And what bothered me was just, it's one thing to say that you don't, that like you don't like that she's not being deferential to Israel. It's one thing to say that you don't like that she's um, not being polite in her criticism, that she's not also criticizing other states that are bad or other lobbying groups that are bad besides APAC. It's one thing to be like, I wish that she didn't do that. It makes me feel bad as a semi-Zionist Jew or a Zionist Jew when she singles out Israel when there's so many other bad things in the world. That makes sense to me. But when I think of dog whistling, when I think of this sort of rhetoric, I think of hate speech. I think of Fox News and InfoWars and God knows what else that really preys off of radicalizing people to do horrible things. And it's just awfully convenient that you have this Muslim woman there and you use this language that can be used to evoke that thing when that's not the anti-Semitism that's been causing harm to American Jews. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's not it's not Muslim women um, right. that, that are doing this. And so it feels so it's feeling like this term was being used to evoke the tactics of white nationalists while also not being used against white nationalists. I see. Both JJ and I want to reassure listeners at the outset here that we both denounce anti-Semitism in the strongest possible terms and note that anti-Semitic tropes ought not to be taken lightly. As we've seen in both recent and less recent attacks, beliefs have real-world consequences. And when it comes to anti-Semitism, those consequences are often deadly. Nothing that is said here should be understood as a defense of anti-Semitic remarks or dog whistles as less than deadly serious. So the purpose of the philosophical dialogue here is twofold. First, we want to understand what a dog whistle is and some of its moral contours. Lang wants to make clear two different sorts of dog whistles. And note that if Omar is guilty of doing one kind of dog whistle, she's almost certainly not guilty of doing the other. Second, Lang wants to point out that if we're careful in our attention to Omar's remarks, it's not clear that she's dog whistling at all. The fact that it might sound like she is, is the product of a regrettable situation where anti-Semitic tropes are so widespread that it's almost impossible not to stray close to them when discussing Israel. What is a dog whistle for people who haven't heard this term used in a political context before? Yeah, fantastic question. So the term is meant to evoke the literal dog whistle, which is a whistle that you blow at a frequency that makes dogs go wild, but inaudible to humans. And the idea is you have this particular bit of language that makes a certain group of people react in some certain way, whereas everyone else keeps on acting as if nothing was said, nothing of consequence, nothing relevant at all. So an example of this, like not from a political context, would be like maybe if there's like a 
Disney movie for kids or something. And um, some scene in the movie it perfectly evokes a scene of Casablanca. That's a little something for the parents. <laughs> and they're going to feel a little bit better about catching that Easter egg when they're bored out of their mind watching this kid's movie, which is not what they want right. to be doing with their time. And right. the, But the kids aren't going to be like, I don't get it. Why was that there? They're just going to be like, oh, yeah, scene, airplane, right. romance, whatever. So my f- my favorite example of that is in Frozen. There are three or four Arrested Development references, like in fast wow. succession. Wow! Yeah, it's it, it happens really quickly in this scene where th- like three different characters make Arrested Development references that are pretty unmistakable, especially when you see them all um, so close together in the movie, <laughs> and it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So something like that, you know, is like, it's maybe it's not super clear what the purpose is, but this is something where it's not like if you haven't seen Arrested Development, you're going to be confused by that. If you haven't seen Arrested Development, it's like nothing happened. Right. Just like when the whistle is blown and you're not a dog, it's like nothing happened. Right. But to the people who catch it, they get very excited. They might. And, you know, maybe maybe they're going to give the writers of Frozen a little bit more credit now um, <laughs> or at the very least empathize with them because if that's their humor, they clearly don't want to be doing this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, whatever the reason is just like at the very least, like we caught something. Right. So politically dog whistling in this sense is going to be a way of signaling something to a group of people without anyone outside of that group catching it. Um, So an example would be like when a conservative politician says they support family values. If you're not familiar with the way family values is used to talk about abstinence until marriage, heterosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, you might just be like, yeah, okay, why did candidate so-and-so waste their any of their 30 seconds saying they support family values i support family values right um how could you not families are great (laughs) my best friend's two dads support family values and (laughs) my friends in this polyamorous triad support family values like um (laughs) but but to the people who are familiar with what that term is used to mean they catch it and they go oh okay this is somebody who is going to have hopefully have policies that reflect these values. And importantly, instead of just coming out and like saying like, I'm against gay marriage, you're doing it in a way that doesn't alienate people who might support gay marriage or for whom gay marriage might be a deal breaker in terms of a candidate. But you've still told the people who want a candidate who's going to fight against it, that you're one of them. So you've gotten your target group and you've told them where you are, but in a way where people outside the target group are going to think nothing happened. Right. Another example of this was, I think, in the bid for, I can't remember if it was the first or for re-election, but George W. Bush talked several times about how he did not support the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of Dred Scott. So why is he talking about this pro-slavery ruling in the 19th century? And I think it's just good fodder for people who think that George W. Bush is not the brightest man because (laughs) or you might think that he's very, very concerned that people think Republicans are so evil that they would support slavery. But no, people who talk about Roe versus Wade talk about opposing the Supreme Court in cases when they clearly got it wrong, such as Dred Scott. 
So people who are familiar with that conversation see, okay, what he's doing is he's saying that he's he's against the Supreme Court when they get it wrong, like Dred Scott and like Roe v. Wade, but doing so in a way that people who are not familiar with those discussions aren't going to be like, he just said he's going to fight Roe v. Wade. He just said he's going to like appoint judges who are against Roe v. Wade. They're just like, okay, Bush is silly. Right. So, right. so that's, so that's the main idea of dog whistling. And it's, um, that's what Saul calls an overt dog whistle. Okay. What makes it overt, and it's overt, it's a weird term, right? Because this is language that's supposed to work by going undetected, but <laughs> it's over to the intended group. Okay. And she points out that sometimes this can be done unintentionally. Like if I, in response to a conservative politician, say, well, of course I support family values too. I just did it. Uh-huh. And I didn't mean to. I don't even know what I did, but I just did it. Right. And so that's something dangerous. But then she points out there's another thing that dog whistling has been used to mean, which she calls covert dog whistles. And what this is is something where it does its job without you even noticing that it's, it did its job on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so she gives examples of this terms like uh, government spending or inner city crime mm-hmm. or racially coded lang- bits of language to evoke the idea that certain government social programs are used to unfairly bestow money on undeserving minorities who just won't work or inner city crime um, we're not talking about the Wall Street execs downtown who are embezzling from their companies. <laughs> that's not the inner city. Which crime. is undoubtedly in the city. Right? Yeah, even though like technically I think that's what it is. It, mean, it means something very specific. And I think at least for a while, what would happen would be we would find that, and she goes over studies in her papers that did this. She didn't conduct them, but she like looked at studies that were conducted that show mm-hmm. that oftentimes, even if at first, if like ads had like very, very clearly racial imagery in them and then talked about government spending, mm-hmm. then people who had negative racial attitudes would have them engaged mm-hmm. when they answered questionnaires. And also people who had like very, very, very positive views of race would like respond positively too. So it worked both ways. Mm-hmm. But if you were explicitly like asking about race then, then the kind of effect would go away. And then a lot of people would be like afraid to give into their prejudice. Mm. But before they realized they were giving into the prejudice, they were just thinking about these terms that they've been primed to think of in these ways and they would behave in a prejudiced way. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what happens is once these covert dog whistles sneak into the general political lexicon, mm-hmm. you no longer need that racial imagery. And just the mention of government spending was working just as well as mentions of government spending with images of like evoking horrible stereotypes like the welfare queen or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't need that anymore. And people were doing this unaware and people were like responding to it unaware that they were responding to it to some degree. Mm-hmm. So you have some dog whistles that work by somebody signaling and saying, I'm one of you. And then the people in the group saying nice. And then, people outside of the group saying, I didn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. But then you have this other species of dog whistle that works by people saying, hey, think about your racial attitudes. And them saying, I don't realize I'm thinking about my racial attitudes, but I'm responding as if I am. Mm -hmm. 
So two very different things right. and both that can be done intentionally or unintentionally. Right. Like once the government spending thing goes in there and you don't even need that negative racial imagery to make it work, mm -hmm. then all you have to do is say, I want to increase government spending and people will think, will think, oh, that sounds horrible. Right. Um, if they have these negative attitudes. Right. So it's like if I'm saying, if I say something like, you know, just imagine yourself walking a dark alley late at night and this kind of thuggish guy shows up behind you around the corner and starts following you. And so you start to, I'm starting to activate some racial stereotypes and maybe some fear. And then I say, um, and he's a black man, not, you know, not that that matters or anything. And then you're like, mm, so suddenly you're it? like, oh, wait, prejudice. I need to start thinking like, oh, okay, I'm not afraid of him just because he's black or exactly. whatever. Um, so when I actually like explicitly tell you that this is a racial thing, it uh, actually f gets you to not have the bias, at least not as strong or it doesn't activate it in the same way. Whereas when I use just coded language, um, it activates the bias and also doesn't activate this other mechanism in your mind that that is like self-aware of the bias. Exactly, exactly. So part of the worry that you have with people saying Ilhan Omar is guilty of dog whistling is that it's using a term, well, so pri I, I guess primarily in the political sphere, it's used people recognizing um, coded racism in yes. language. And your worry with it being applied to Ilan Omar is that what it doesn't seem to be picking out in this case is coded racism, partially because it's coming from one person who is in a, a marginalized group picking out other people who are in a marginalized group. And so it's not, yeah. it's not as clearly a case of racism where the clearest case is someone in the, in the mainstream of society picking on someone who's in a marginalized group. Totally. Well, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, what it is also playing off of is this trope of Muslims and Jews hating each other. Okay. Um, so, so in that sense, it's exactly picking out this idea of racism, but it's picking off this like Islamophobic idea of, mm. of course she hates Jews. Just look at her mm. more, more. And, and so you see a lot of outrage about this that you don't when you see white conservative politicians saying blatantly anti-Semitic things using this sort of coded language. And where even if people are upset about it, it's almost like it's almost like they get that gets elevated to a level of, well, we just disagree with them. And here it's like, but there's something about the way she's doing it <laughs> that uh -huh, seems right. dangerous. And I wonder what, what it could be. Right. So that's insidious and dangerous when a Muslim woman does it, whereas it's just a matter of rational disagreement if someone else does it. It's amazing how that works out, isn't it? <laughs> um, and that doesn't, and, but I had, so this is where, I, how I was feeling, but at that point, mostly what it was, was a feeling. I was aware that there is some philosophy of language written about dog whistling, mm -hmm. most noticeably by Jenny Saul. I mean, I, I, well, now I've read the paper, but like a few weeks ago, I, I hadn't, it's really good. I hadn't read the paper, but I just knew that this was, this was in there. And I was mm -hmm. thinking, well, you know, what if I sit down and read this paper and try and make sense of why it just doesn't seem like this is the right way to explain what's mm -hmm. going on here. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And then over the course of a week, I really made sense to myself, which was really the goal. I made sense to myself of 
what just seemed wrong about the dog whistling out allegations, not just beyond just like, cause you know, it's one thing to be like, this should also be applied to other people, but it's another thing to be like, this is misapplied to her period. Mm-hmm, right. And so figuring out why I was misapplied to her and then deciding that I just wanted to like write and try and articulate this because most in large part, because I think Jenny Saul's work is so good is such an example of philosophy engaging with literature and other disciplines, mm-hmm. um, engaging with recent and slightly more historical political aspects, um, figuring out the relationships between language, speech, harm, democracy, um, and just also that analytic philosophy virtue of making some amazing distinctions and identifying at least four different types of dog whistles. Um, and so something that was really big for me was realizing that, oh, what I think of as dog whistling and what I think a lot of people think of as dog whistling is this very insidious, insidious thing. Um, and there's a flavor or two of dog whistling that is insidious. But it seems like if any form of dog whistling describes what Ilhan Omar is doing, it's one of the ones that is far less insidious and far harder to avoid. Hmm. So even just using even just using the term dog whistling to describe it is a way of evoking this Muslim woman doing some insidious, awful thing mm-hmm. while you while then equivocating that playing trading off of that ambiguity to describe something that lots of people do that is very hard to do and mm. that is not really an accident when certain things are very hard to talk about without dog whistling in this sense mm-hmm. um that's just something that's like really hard to avoid and we should be talking about who made that the case mm-hmm. and not just calling out the one one person for doing it mm-hmm. so just realizing that part of what was bothering me was that we talk about dog whistling in a way that evokes this, like I'm intentionally doing this thing and I'm doing it to signal my bigotry to the bigots, but doing Mm -hmm. it in a way where no one else will see it. Mm -hmm. And then there's also dog whistling of like, these words have started to evoke certain things and that'll happen no matter who does it. Like now at this point, it's really hard to say I would like to increase government spending without the phrase government spending triggering this thought in people's mind that government spending is what goes to lazy people of certain racial groups. Right. Um, and that makes it really hard to say government spending is good. Uh-huh. Um, right. <laughs> um, so, so, so seeing that and just feeling like, wow, you know, like seeing the different meanings of this term, seeing the different ways it's been applied and seeing the different features has given me so much more clarity into how the term is being misapplied. Right. And even if it's not ex- necessarily being applied wrongly it's being applied in a way that is still harmful and maybe originally by people who wanted to be harmful but now mostly by people who are just like muddying the use of the word innocuously and that's a very dangerous thing i think with language so our our central target might be someone who's like like i've heard a, a few democratic politicians stand up particularly the ones i've heard have been at least ethnically jewish though i'm not sure how much that matters because there there have been other non-jewish democrats standing up and saying what she's doing is dog whistling because she's evoking these tropes and things like that and so this is a person who means to call out anti-semitism when they see it and means to be using dog whistling in a good faith 
the the concept dog whistle in a good faith effort to describe what Ilan Omar is doing, but you think they're <laughs> making a conceptual mistake and as a result having harmful political consequences. Yeah, I think I think that that's a, I think that's a good way of, of putting it. Um, yeah, that um, at worst a conceptual mistake. I think at this point I'm convinced they are. But even if they're just using dog whistle in sense B, but inadvertently suggesting that she's guilty of dog whistling in sense A, where we really don't like people who dog whistle in sense A, then even there, they, even if they're not making that conceptual mistake, it's still like we're we're now primed to think of her as an A. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is where it got a little bit dense. It's really interesting point though. So one of JJ's worries is that in accusing Omar of dog whistling, one thing we might be doing is making it seem as if Omar is doing the particularly bad kind of dog whistling, which is a bigot signaling to other bigots that they're bigoted. So that's the really bad kind of dog whistle. What she might be doing instead is this other kind of dog whistle, which you might think is less morally, makes you less morally guilty. And that's where you use language that is used in the first kind of dog whistle, the signaling bigotry dog whistle. And you're using the kind of language that, that someone dog whistling in the first way might use, but you're not yourself aware that you're doing so. So if you use language that is used to dog whistle, then in a sense, you are dog whistling as well, even though you're not as morally guilty as the person who uses a dog whistle to signal their own bigotry to other bigots, right? So JJ's worry is that in just calling what Omar is doing dog whistling, we might inadvertently be sending the message to people that she is a bigot and she's signaling to other bigots that she's a bigot. But that seems clearly not to be what's going on. Instead, it seems like what's going on is, if anything, she's using phrases that have a history of being used in dog whistling, even though she doesn't intend it to be a dog whistle. That's still a form of dog whistling, but it's not the most morally problematic kind of dog whistle. Now, to be clear, as we'll see, JJ does not think that Omar is dog whistling, even in this other sense. But if she is dog whistling, it seems pretty clear that she's dog whistling in the second less problematic so sense. I, I wonder, I guess one question I have is the overt dog whistles, it makes sense why we would call those dog whistles. Uh, but like it works almost exactly analogously to the way a dog whistle works is where I do something. I know that certain species are going to hear it and certain other species are not going to hear it and it's going to do the, the mm -hmm. thing I need it to do. This other case, it's an interesting case because it feels less like I want to call it a dog whistle. It's like, yes. It's certainly something that's very closely related and analogous to an overt dog whistle, but I'm not doing something that only certain people are going to understand and I'm, I'm signaling something to them or something like that. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. That's a really interesting question. Well, I mean, I think that in the sense that only people who have these sorts of prejudices are going to react accordingly. Mm. It's not signaling an understanding, but you're conveying something that's only going to have its effect in the targeted group, whereas somebody who has no 
prejudices about that group isn't going to have any sort of reaction. Mm. So in that sense, it's still a way of having an effect on the intended group of people Mm. without outing yourself to people outside of that group. Mm. And without having the the same effect on different people. Mm -hmm. And, And I think something that just that this has more in common with the literal dog whistle is like, it's not like dogs are like, Ooh, only we can hear this. (laughs) They're just like howling. And similarly with the covert dog whistle, it's not like people who have these prejudices are like, Ooh, only we are responding in this way. They're just like howling. Um, (laughs) right. So, um, I hadn't thought about that, but now, now now that you asked that question, in that sense, I think it is more like a dog whistle in that we're not, the people who are affected by it are not aware that it's only them being uh-huh. affected by it. Interesting. To them, it might just seem like it's part of the literal meaning or like slash, they might not be aware that there's an effect at all. Right, right. So you hear, you hear law and order and you think, well, everyone knows what law and order means. It means, you know, any of those, uh, you know, inner city thugs who gets out of line, we're going to lock them up. And that's what everyone means by it when you don't realize that there are whole groups of people who recognize the racial implications of that and don't react that way. Exactly. Okay, so um, maybe you could rehearse some of the um, coded or allegedly coded language that Ilan Omar has been using and why that's been called a dog whistle. And then we could get into why you think that's a mistake. So the two recent examples in rapid succession were both on Twitter, which is where all reason discourse occurs. Um, (laughs) Of course. And uh, the first was the tweet itself just said, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Right. Which is a reference to a lyric by, I guess Puff Daddy was what he went by at the time. (laughs) Um, I think he goes by Diddy or maybe even Love right now. but Love? I believe so. Oh, wow. I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. I stopped, I stopped you, keeping I, track in 2007 or something. <laughs> I think culturally you were afforded two name changes and then like, <laughs> or like one if it's into a symbol, but like two name changes in English and then it's gone. But um, Puff Daddy, <laughs> it's all about the Benjamins baby. So that, that was the entire content of the tweet. But in context, kind of like leftist, left libertarian, political journalist Glenn Greenwald was tweeting about how conservative lawmakers were trying to punish Ilan Omar for her anti-Israel remarks. And the comment was about how it's amazing how many conservative politicians will go to such great lengths to restrict free speech of American citizens for the sake of Israel. Mm -hmm. And... Ilhan Omar's response to that was, it's all about the Benjamins baby, suggesting that there is money encouraging them to do this. Mm-hmm. And so some journalist who was Jewish, I do not remember who it was, but I think they were the first to pick up that something strange here and ask her, who exactly do you think has this money? With this idea being like, are you playing off of this old Jewish tropes that Jews are using dark money to, to influence politicians and like buy their way into power? Mm-hmm. And her response was APAC, a pro-Israel lobbying group that has never shied away from how it believes that its money influences the behavior of politicians and has until recently pretty successfully made support of Israel a bipartisan agreement. So the whole thing was, she says it's all about the Benjamins baby, suggesting that 
there is money supporting people silencing critics of Israel and that the money is coming from this lobbying group that uses money to influence politicians. Mm -hmm. And part of the backlash was, look, you know, there is this trope of Jews using money to buy power, Jews having a lot of money, Jews being money hungry, lots of lots of things about Jews and money, Mm -hmm. lots of things about Jews and power, long history of that being malicious. And also, look, you know, there's lobbying groups that are far more powerful than APAC. Look at the NRA. Where's her outrage about them? Mm -hmm. And so now you might think this sort of has the form of a dog whistle, right? Because maybe even an overt dog whistle, because it sounds like she's just saying something about lobbying groups using money to influence politicians, which is what their job is. Mm -hmm. So she's saying something almost trivial, Mm -hmm. but she's doing so in a way that evokes this imagery about Jews, money, and power, Mm -hmm. and in a way that is not talking about other lobbying groups that have much more money and power than APEC. So so it sounds like just this innocuous thing of like, this group is doing its job, trivial, Mm -hmm. and dig beneath it, and it's like, oh, that's that's what's going on. She's telling... uh, this this is something that people who uh, are anti-Semitic are going to pick up on. Right. And you might think that there is an overlap with some covert dog whistles, too, or you might think, OK, yeah, well, if people who have anti-Semitic attitudes about money hungry Jews apply those attitudes to when they think about Israel, then they might be more inclined to be critical of Israel. So that's a way to manipulate them mm. off of their anti-Semitism into disliking Israel. Mm. That one's a bit confusing to me because you might think that anti-Semites might just not like Israel, period. But yeah. <laughs> maybe there's someone who's anti-Semitic, but independently pro-Israel. But then you dog whistle them into thinking about their anti-Semitism when they think about Israel. And that makes them reconsider their stance on Israel. Right. So it could work both ways, right? Yeah, I guess you could have someone who's just like, well, I mean, Israel's just defending itself. It's fine, whatever. And also is kind of like, you know, I I don't have anything against um, Jewish people, but under the surface, they have these tropes embedded deep in their psyche about money hungry Jews and, um, you know, the the exactly the the conspiracy of Jewish people like trying to take over the world or whatever. And you have like these tropes in your mind. And you don't even have to like explicitly endorse any of these theories or anything, but just to have a sort of stereotype that gets activated when we talk about Jewish lobbying groups using money to influence American politics. And you think it activates something deep in your psyche. Yes. Yeah. And and so I think also to go back to your question real quick about like how these two species of dog whistling seem so different. Just to say, so here's like an example where it seems like maybe both are going on in tandem. That the anti-Semites who would probably identify as such are now going to see this overt dog whistle and wave hello to one of their own. Um, And the people who might not identify as such but have these tropes embedded in them are going to also now have these prejudices called to the front of their mind when evaluating this issue. Mm -hmm. So... So you could see it having that like double whammy on like the proud anti-Semites and the kind of like unwitting people with prejudices. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's something that often happens. I think that like a lot of examples that I'm familiar with are like pretty neatly one or the other. Yeah. But I think the fact that you could have, it makes sense how something like this could pull double duty. Right. Um, might make sense to why like both deserve the name dog whistling. Yeah. Do you have another example of, uh, Omar's 
in mind. <laughs> the other one, she made a comment at a talk and then reiterated on Twitter that um, she refuses to pledge allegiance to a foreign country in, or in order to serve the United States, where mm -hmm. that foreign country from context is very clearly Israel. Mm -hmm. And now people were quick to jump on her to say, look, you know, there's this longstanding trope about Jewish people having dual loyalty to their country and to Israel or mm -hmm. to a Zionist state before Israel was created. And so you're playing off of this idea of Jews not being loyal, which is going underneath the surface of you saying this literally trivial thing, which is that you don't have to pledge allegiance to a foreign country to serve the U.S., which, yes, I agree. But <laughs> right. underneath this obvious thing is this like evoking of this dual loyalty idea mm. that is used to question the Americanness of Jews. Right. I wasn't super familiar with this particular trope before this incident, but I was familiar with a similar one that wasn't associated with anti-Semitism. When JFK was running for president, he was the first Catholic presidential candidate, at least in a while. I'm not sure the history on that. And there was a persistent and explicit worry that his being a Catholic would interfere with his being president of the United States. Because, so the conjecture went, a Catholic is loyal primarily, if not solely, to the Vatican, rather than to the laws and ideals of the United States. What would happen if we went to war with Italy, for instance? So this is sort of related to the idea of Jewish, especially politicians, having dual loyalty to the state of Israel and also to America. So those are the two examples. And I should flag that like a few years ago, she had tweeted something about Israel hypnotizing the world, right. which also plays into tropes. And she was quick to apologize for that and talk about how she is always learning and like did not realize the way that played into any sort of like tropes about. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't really know. Like this is just like very much plays into anti-Semitic ideas. Of right. But at the same time, there's something that she meant by her statement that I think she stands by, which is at the time there was bipartisan support for a regime that is surprising that there is such bipartisan support for. Right. And to evoke ideas of Jews hypnotizing others is like not great, but you do understand both what she means and how hard it is to evoke to to evoke this like sense of shock that no one seems to care about this right in a way that it doesn't do it but um so that goes back more to recent. that goes back to the other thing you were saying earlier about certain things get um so ingrained with racist ideology or problematic ideology that you can't you, it starts to be where you can't make even innocuous points that are in the yeah. in the neighborhood of of the the racist or problematic point uh without evoking the same tropes or imagery. And that's what's going on here too, is that she's trying to make this point about a very wealthy Jewish man's lobbying group using money to buy power. She's trying to make a point about her, Ilhan Omar, not having to have dual loyalty to Israel. And she didn't even use the term, the phrase dual loyalty. She said pledge allegiance, which comes from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Pledge allegiance. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not dual loyalty. That's pledge allegiance. So this is something where it's like, I don't know how much clearer she could be. Mm. And you see like, there's like a Republican congressman who told her that there's no room for questioning our relationship with Israel. Mm -hmm. There's Marco Rubio's anti-boycott divest sanction bill that was going to make it so 
states could vote to make it illegal to do business with companies that supported BDS. Right. So this sounds, you know, if if you want to call that pledging allegiance to Israel, that's, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a rhetorical flourish or like combative, but yeah, there are people literally saying that there is no, that there is no room to engage with or even entertain the thought of not treating them like our, our ally unquestioningly. Right. So trying to make a kind of mundane point, we should at least be able to be critical of this. And Suddenly we're talking about the dual loyalty of American Jews when she was talking about her loyalty, Ilhan Omar, and like not using the word loyalty. Right. So this point here is, again, just a bit subtle. To dog whistle, you often must use the exact phrasing. If someone says, I'll be a law and order candidate, that evokes certain racially loaded ideas about what it means to have law and order and who is primarily the target of efforts to achieve law and order. If I say instead, I believe we're a nation of laws, I'm evoking a whole different set of ideas about how we are ruled by laws rather than people and that we're a constitutional democracy and so on. So if I don't use the right wording, then I'm not really dog whistling. JJ's point here is that Omar, in neither of these cases, used the right wording, nor even said the right thing for it to be a dog whistle. And so I think one thing about like the misuse of dog whistles that I've found upsetting is like, If you want to say that you don't like that she's using this kind of combative rhetoric and that she's being a bit glib and like quoting rap lyrics, go out and say (laughs) it. Say that you don't like that the black woman is quoting rap lyrics. Let's see how that works out for you. (laughs) Um, Say that she is angry and not articulate. Let's see how that works out for you. (laughs) But instead, what we find is this piece of academic jargon, Uh dog whistles. Mm -hmm. And now ah, she's dog whistling. She's not being angry and glib. She's dog whistling. She's not being inarticulate. She's dog whistling. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly we sound smart mm. and we can't get charged with saying bad things. Right. <laughs> um, so it's this double whammy. And never mind that dog whistling, it usually matters what exactly is being said. The exact wording matters. Right. We just like fib it and say, well, you know, it's evoking this thing which would be a dog whistle. Mm-hmm. Pledge allegiance is going to bring up the idea of dual loyalty her allegiance is going to bring up the idea of Jews' allegiance, which is a dog whistle. Uh, it's like, okay, so maybe you mean at best there's something in the neighborhood of a dog whistle, mm-hmm. but say that. Right. Say that you mean that she's doing the thing where it's just really hard to talk about a certain area without evoking dog whistles. Right. Don't say that she's doing the like signaling her bigotry to other bigots thing uh-huh. that makes it sound like, well, clearly she's a bigot then. Right. And so it's all of this like sloppiness around what is such a... F- fine-grained area, create something where, like, maybe she is inadvertently using covert dog whistles. Maybe her bringing up any particular Jewish person's relationship to money and power is going to trigger those prejudices in the people who have them, regardless of whether she wants to or not. So if that's true, maybe she is dog whistling. But when we talk about dog whistling, that's not what we think of. Yeah. We don't think of people who are struggling to find a way to make this valid point in a way that doesn't evoke these tropes and in this case failed to do so. Right. And so if that's what we mean by Ilhan Omar as dog whistling, but we don't say that, we end up evoking this idea of a bigot signaling her bigotry to other bigots. Right. And that's what enters the public record. Right. But, and and one thing that I, that, um, I think is in Saul's paper that I like is that she does address this question of how do we combat the the um, effects of dog whistling. Yeah. And one thing that she said is found to be productive is like, you might think that 
well, you know, if we say government spending and we have racist imagery in the ad, then people are going to get it. Maybe if we just avoid talking about race, people won't think of it. No, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. But what did seem to work is have what she termed uh, contra standard imagery. No, maybe that's something else. I don't remember the exact term, but the the idea was like that if you show hardworking black people uh-huh. um, instead of just avoiding talk about people altogether, then it challenges you to th- it, it it prevents you from like going into your prejudice about the welfare queen or whatever. Right. So in that sense, I think like something that could be useful would be, well, you know, Ilhan Omar was trying to talk about Israel, not Jews. She was trying to talk about her allegiance, not Jews. So maybe if she like talked about like all the great American Jews who she right. supports and works with. Right. Maybe she talks about like all the American Jews who have been using what money they do have for good right? and doing that, then maybe that would be a way of combating the inadvertent effects of those covert dog whistles. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that I think people would really maybe like to see, but then uh, the flip side. And so I think that's something that could be true, right? That if like, instead of just being like, I wasn't talking about Jews, I was talking about Israel. Right. She talked about Jews in a way that combated the effects of the dog whistle. And that could be good. Right. But on the flip side, there is this danger of people saying that whenever you criticize Israel, you're clearly criticizing Jews. You're right. clearly being anti-Semitic. Right. And so in that sense, talking about Jews whenever you bring up Israel plays into that conflation. Right. And so this is the trap where it's like in order to undo the effects of the prejudice, she has to buy into the idea that Israel and Jews are the same. Right. Um, That any Jewish person supports Israel, that criticizing Israeli policies is criticizing Jewish people. Right. So, so I get why she doesn't want to do that and maybe even shouldn't do that. We're at the same time thinking that that could be a way to combat the effects of the dog whistling. Yeah. A bit of a trap. And the trap seems to come in large part out of a problematic social fact about United States mainstream culture that Israel and Judaism are so tightly linked that it seems like you can't talk about one without talking about the other, or you can't yeah. question one without questioning the other. Or It's like there's a, a problematic judgment that we make as a culture that anytime you talk about Israel, you're ipso facto talking about Jews in general or the religion of, uh, of Judaism or something like that. Um, and yeah. that, that problematic judgment um, traps someone like Ilan Omar in a way that she can't get out of cleanly. Yeah, I th- and I think that's right. And I think to be aware that like there are plenty of people who like just really have not been exposed to these issues too much, you know, like live in towns that maybe don't have much of a Jewish population. Right. And they think, okay, well, you know, if you hate the state that's literally for Jews, then (laughs) what does that say about your relationship to Jews? And I think like on that level, like that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to draw. Right. But also I think that it's in some people's interest that that others hold this idea that like if they see anti-Semitism in the U.S., then they think, well, we need Israel. We need a state for Jews because they're not safe here. If people are aware of anti-Semitism in the U.S., then they need, then then they will have a more positive view of the need for the state of Israel. That the more fully Jewish Americans assimilate into American life, the less obvious it is why we need Israel. Right. Um, So in that, and so in that sense, you have this idea that like 
and it gets you into this bind almost of like of like for certain people it's like actually um anti-semitism is good for business <laughs> um right right you saw like a little bit of that in the um immediate aftermath of the pittsburgh shooting of like some senators including a couple of democratic ones were like now coming out in support of the anti-bds bill mm. as a way of combating anti-semitism mm. And it's this idea of like, yeah, well, now, you know, now that anti-Semitism is on everyone's radar, it's a really bad time to be anti-Israel mm. and a really easy time to use your support of Israel and get away with that undercover of, well, you know, this is how I combat anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not definitely not saying that every supporter of Israel is <laughs> a supporter of anti-Semitism, but that there is this opportunistic bent of like, when people are aware of anti-Semitism, it's harder to criticize someone for being pro-Israel. Maybe it would be good to have you concisely summarize the the core problem that you see in attributing dog whistling to Ilan Omar based on these remarks. As yeah, so so maybe like what what is the like philosophically speaking, what is the problem that's happening? Mm-hmm. Well, there's uh yeah, I'm so so phil- yeah. I think like the philosophically speaking always trips me up. Uh-huh. So, so I guess it, there's w- one way of saying the point is there actually isn't a philosophical problem. Um, people are. Yeah. I mean, part of me is like the problem is she isn't dog whistling, <laughs> but, um, but really, uh, but so I think one point maybe is like, ac- like a bit more of like this academic point, which is when we have academic, language that no one is exactly sure of the meaning of, we can use that as a way to sound smart and well-reasoned about points that we want to make that if we made them in different ways would not come off that way. Mm -hmm. So Ilhan Omar is mad about Israel. And (laughs) instead of talking about an angry black woman, we have somebody who is dog whistling. Some of her language is making us uncomfortable. So on, on one level, we have this idea of like, now we have this idea of dog whistling, which people understand vaguely has something to do with some sort of rhetoric or coded language. And it's vaguely understand that it's something that bigoted people do in communication with other bigots. And so the effect of using this term that has a specific meaning with more of a blanket application to refer to just something more just like rhetorically charged or angry language. Part of the recording got cut off at this point, unfortunately, but I'll quickly summarize the last part of the conversation. I brought up the complaint that I've heard from particularly conservative acquaintances that they've been told that they're dog whistling even when they don't intend anything racist by the language they're using and they don't harbor racist attitudes. So I have some compassion for people who are just trying to engage in reasonable conversation and then they're told that regardless of their explicit beliefs or their intentions, they're not only bigoted, but they're acting in a bigoted way. It's not a fun way to have a conversation. Especially when you look around and you see explicit racist ideologies everywhere. In a world where it feels like that should be the target, and I mean, I think there's like lots of analogs with this. It's like, you're mad about gender neutral language. like, you're, you think I'm sexist because of gender-neutral language? Look at all of the sexism out there. Get back to me when there's equal pay. And so it can definitely feel that way, especially when it feels like you're being attacked. But then, you know, there might be other times, too, where, like, the attack is um, warranted. <laughs> but, but, but in general, I think, um, yeah, I, I totally think what you're saying, where it's like, I think, so this is another case where nuance can be very helpful, like, understanding that, like, dog whistling comes apart from intention, or can come apart from intention, I should say. 
allows people to say, hey, like, I know or doubt that that's your intention, but um, this is this thing that's going on when you say this thing. It has that effect regardless of your intention. This is how it's come to have that effect. And it seems like avoiding that language is the best way around it right now. I want to put this on your radar. And then if they continue to ignore you, then eventually you can get mad at them or eventually be like, look, at this point, if you're just refusing to not do the racist thing at low cost or no cost, then as far as I'm concerned, you are a racist and I'm mad at you now. But like going straight to like, oh, your dog whistling, which is what racists do. It's like, that, yeah, that's not productive. It doesn't show an understanding of the concept. And like no one's going to change when they know that they're not being explicitly racist. JJ had a really interesting response here. Yes, this is an unfortunate social dynamic. No one wants to be lumped in with the deplorables. But the fault isn't with the people pointing out that a dog whistle is being used. Instead, the fault lies in a situation where so much language has been co-opted as dog whistles that it becomes near impossible to discuss, say, immigration policy or government spending or policing without inadvertently evoking racially loaded tropes. The fault lies with those who have corrupted our language. Now, when you use it, it's going to evoke these things in people, whether you want them to or not. And evoking those things is problematic, whether you intended to or not. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad person for using the language you've heard other people use. But I think to take that anger that you have and being told that you can't use language however you want to, and instead of turning it towards the people who are telling you to use different language, Turn it to the people who've made it that you can't use this phrase to mean what you want it to mean. Um, there are people who have used law and order and turned it into a dog whistle to evoke, to, to prey off of prejudices. Be mad at them. They corrupted your language. Similarly, like we should be asking, like, yeah, you know, if Ilhan Omar can't talk about lobbying money in the case of a Jewish group without preying off of these stereotypes, like, we should be mad at the people who've created these stereotypes and made them so pervasive. Um, and, uh, but, but, but so there, I think to say like, yeah, you know, like if it feels that way, I, I do empathize because it clearly wasn't what you intended, but just to learn like language has lots of effects that we don't intend. And if we just ignore those effects or just claim we're intending them to go away, um, like if I insist on using the number one pick in the NBA draft to refer to a different person and refuse to learn who was actually drafted number one. That's just like irresponsible of me. It doesn't change the referent. It just makes me an incompetent language user. And I'm sorry that this was that, that like it will often feel like pretty much every way that you've learned how to talk, especially if you've learned how to talk about politics from sources that are perpetuators of these dog whistles, then it's really hard to, use the terms in the ways that you want them to want to use them to say, yeah, it's because language takes on these meanings. It has this power. And if you're mad about that, so am I, but don't be mad at the people telling you to change. JJ also points out a philosophically interesting aspect of things like dog whistles. What's so interesting from a philosophical standpoint about concepts like dog whistling is that they work in certain ways regardless of our intention. And there is this question of how can language take on this meaning without us intending it to? And I think that like if you mystify yourself enough, you start to wonder how that's possible. But then imagine like somebody ends up being very sensitive about their haircut and you say your haircut is bad and you've made them feel bad. You didn't intend to. You don't care about your hair at all. 
but you made them feel bad regardless of your intention. And there's no, no like magic trick about that. So I think like realizing on one hand, yeah, it seems hard to believe that language can have all of these effects regardless of our intention, but then also realizing, oh yeah, you don't have to in, intend to offend in order to cause offense. You can intend to be funny without making people laugh. Intention doesn't, isn't ever the end all be all. So why should this be any different? In addition, though, we all need to be responsible enough not to use these conceptual tools like the concept of a dog whistle and the awareness that certain phrases are dog whistles for bigotry as bludgeons to silence other people. We need to be sensitive to each other enough to recognize that we're all trying to figure out what we can believe that coheres with all the other things we believe while avoiding being racist or bigoted in any way. This brings up a further distinction that I find quite helpful, the difference between calling out and calling in. So whereas calling someone out is sort of ostracizing and criticizing someone because they said something that was maybe offensive or harmful in some way, calling someone in is a way of noting to someone that they said something that might have had a harmful effect or might have a harmful effect in the future, but in a way that includes them so that they feel understood and not ostracized by what you're doing. In activist circles, the push is towards calling folks in when they trip up. We all use language that inadvertently causes harm to other folks, and most of the time we mean no harm by it. So instead of calling someone out as if they intended to do harm, we call them in, recognizing that they meant no harm and attempting to educate them a bit about the unsavory connotations of the phrasing they choose. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I should be super explicit. Like I say this as a a white person, and like this is, I think, what I try and do to be productive while also being fully aware that like not everyone is going to have the mental capacity or distance from the issue to find that productive like um people who look differently than me might do exactly what I do and still be taken as like accusing them of doing something or being angry or something um so it is like definitely a sort of privilege so I definitely don't want to be like yeah everyone needs to like sit down and explain why like this harmful language against them uh, is harmful to the people who are perpetuating it and who've had decades to educate themselves on it. But, but yeah, I think that when you have that distance or you have that energy or these people in your life who you do know, love, trust, care about, then yeah, I think being able to call in and say, this is a thing I've learned and this is how it comes apart from your intention. And this is why it's bad. And this is why it's badness is separate from what you're intending to do. And this is why you can't intend the badness away. Now, some people, especially marginalized folks, grow weary of having to educate folks all the time. So they might not always have the emotional and mental resources available to be patient and call someone in. It's hard work, and it often requires some social and emotional distance from the issue. Maybe those of us blessed with that distance should take it upon ourselves to stay educated and gently educate one another. We all just need to have more grace with one another. Life is hard, and it's only getting more complicated. And often knowing just how to talk to avoid calling up racist or otherwise bigoted tropes comes out of education and privilege. To me, it comes down to this saying I've seen a few times lately. In a world where you can be anything, be kind to one another. The world has never been too kind. Just as long as we recognize that being kind isn't the same as being nice or polite. Sometimes being kind means being confrontational. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
Thanks again to those who have contributed to the show. If you want to contribute, you can follow the link to our website where there's information on how to back the show financially. If you're interested in more philosophy or philosophical discussion, there's a podcast I really like. It's called Unmute, hosted by Maisha Cherry. And the basic idea is to take uh, marginalized or non-mainstream philosophers and philosophical topics and give them a platform. I highly recommend giving it a listen. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin.